the high desert and the great American Southwest. I bid you all good evening, good morning, good afternoon, as the case may be, around the world, each and every time zone covered like a big blanket by this program, Midnight in the Desert. I'm Art Bell. It is my pleasure to be here. And I've got a number of uh, housekeeping things I want to cover with you. First of all, no uh, no bad language. I, we have two rules. No bad language and only one call per show. That's easy, right? Easy peasy, as somebody says. I want to thank Telos, Joe Talbot, uh, Keith Rowland, my webmaster, Heather Wade, my producer, and, and listen to me, everybody. This girl was born with a phone to her ear. If you have somebody you want to suggest as a guest, somebody who would be really good, then you're going to want to get hold of Heather, Heather Wade, my producer. So how do you do that? She is producer at artbell.com. Not real hard. Stream guys, lv.net, sales, Pete Everhart, of course. Tune in Radio Leo Ashcraft, Dark Matter News. I think we're the only ones with a separate Dark Matter newscast right in the middle of our show. I don't think anybody else does that. So, listen, um, I'm going to ask you all a big favor. Coming tomorrow is the big announcement. I think actually tonight, beginning tonight, we are um, experimentally on XDS. Now, what does that mean? XDS is... It's three letters only. XDS means that we are now sitting inside the satellite receivers of about 4,000 stations nationwide. And by the way, it's open. So all you have to do is flip it on if you're out there in radio world and let us know you put us on. Actually, you have to let us know. But it is open. Now, the favor I'm going to ask of all of you is this is still unofficial tomorrow night it'll be official uh please call your local radio station ask if possible for the manager or the pd program director and request art bell's midnight in the desert i say unabashedly that we have better content more content fewer commercials 6 max an hour no infomercials, a self-contained paranormal newscast, and we can provide ratings that will knock your socks off. And uh, stations come on a first-come, first-served basis. So it's going to get a little hectic for a while. But if, if you would all pick up the phone sometime tomorrow and call the manager and request the show, that would be great because, baby, here we come. All right. So, uh, again, personal news, Asia is better and back in school. Yay. Uh, my wife had quite a week, all week long, tending for Asia. Now to the news that is sort of news. First of all, NASA, the big announcement, Mars has running water. <sighs> I about yawned. Richard C. Hoagland said that fifth. Fifteen years ago on my show. Back then, people laughed. So, uh, there you go. Running water on Mars. Liquid water runs down canyons, crater walls, over the summer months on Mars. 
They have concluded that trickles leave long, dark stains, which we have seen for a long, long time, on the Martian terrain that can reach hundreds of meters downhill in the warmer months before they finally dry up in the autumn as surface temps drop and it freezes. Images taken from the Mars, uh, from Mars orbit show cliffs and the steep walls of valleys and craters streaked with summertime flows that in the most active spots combine to form intricate fan-like patterns. Frankly, any idiot could have seen that it was where water flows. <laughs> uh, scientists are unsure where the water comes from. They think it might rise up from the underground ice or salty aquifers or condense out of the thin Martian atmosphere. Now, of course, they say it is salty. And uh, that, you know, life as we know it could not exist on that water. It does, however, make possible a colony on Mars. Any volunteers? One-way mission. At least we know you got water when you get there. <laughs> anyway, I'm unimpressed by the fact that it would not support life as we know it. Who the heck thinks life as we know it is what it's going to be up there? It'll be life as we don't know it. Sheesh. I mean, what if little crawly things enjoy salty water? What if they thrive on, on briny water? So, you know, NASA does uh, one announcement a decade, a decade late minimum of a decade. All right, this is going to start to get to be serious stuff here. About 24 years, well, let me begin here. The United States announced today with a video on CNN that we are doing a $1 trillion nuclear weapons upgrade. So what do they do? Hop into somebody's living room in, in uh, presumably Russia or, or Beijing and say, hi there, you're screwed. Boom! <laughs> I don't know. A trillion dollars we're going to... Do you know what a trillion dollars could do for us? Anyway, we're going to make them better, we say. About 24 years after the end of the Cold War, Russia and the U.S., seem to be engaged right now, suddenly, in a nuclear arms race once again that could have disastrous consequences, obviously. Russia's deputy prime minister claims that Russia's nuclear weapons can't be stopped by the U.S. They fire them, they hit. That's what he says. So if a war breaks out, they can stop whatever we throw, uh, or they can't. we can't stop whatever they throw at us. In a talk show with the state-run Roisa, oh, that's a television channel there, uh, he claimed that Russia has developed a new technology that could easily overcome the U.S. missile defense system. He's overseeing the modernization of the country's nuclear weapons. Last year, um, he announced that he would overhaul the country's entire nuclear arsenal by 2020. It is part of Putin's rearmament program that is estimated to cost, oh, say, about $700 billion. So they're, they're roughly spending about three-quarters of what we are, but they're ahead of us now. 
Russia's deployed nuclear capacity has overtaken the U.S. for the first time since the year 2000, according to a report from the U.S. State Department. Now, this is really, actually is really serious stuff, folks. What was the Cold War is becoming the Cold War again. I guess you've noticed Russian uh, bombers making close passes by our planes, buzzing our ships, and they are now ahead of us in nuclear weapons, and we're both about, well, we're going to spend more than they will, so I guess we'll be even by then. Maybe. How many times could we blow ourselves into little bits? Well, I want to serve up a little bit of a warning. Tomorrow night, we are going to do a program on global thermonuclear warfare. And I serve up a warning because it is legitimately scary, scary stuff. We are going to talk about how a war might start. We're going to talk about how it might escalate and what the use of those weapons by both sides would mean. For those of you that have been busily uh, adding new dates to predict the end of the world, you really might want to listen to this one. That's tomorrow night. And I also reflect a little bit on Dr. Jacobs. I've got to have David Jacobs back, and I'm going to reschedule him. The invasion that he described of the human race that he believes is underway right now is insidious. Kind of like, it reminded me when I thought a little bit about it, of uh, Father Malachi Martin's perfectly possessed people. Aliens. Kind of like perfectly possessed, I would say, right? Pretty good analogy when you think about it. Oh, uh, one more thing. We are still hunting for a wicked witch. That's right, a wicked witch. And when I say wicked, I mean, oh, I guess I can use all the words, cauldron-stirring, broom-riding, spell-casting, mean-spirited. Well, you don't have to be mean-spirited, I guess. But you, you get the idea. I want a wicked wicked witch. Now, I guess you can be a good person and still be a wicked witch, right? So we're still on the hunt, and if you uh, know of one, and you really need to do a test of wickedness, not wickedness, wickedness. A lot of Wiccans out there, but they're not wicked. (laughs) So you know what I'm after, right? The tough, mean things. The ones that, when well, when they walk down the street towards you, you, you sort of move out of the way because you know, well, you know if you do the wrong thing, that could be trouble. Okay, I think that gets most things out of the way. We'll go into the uh, XDS thing a little tomorrow. I think we're up there right now, by the way, testing. So on all those XDS uh XDS receivers, kind of exciting. Coming up in a moment is Nick Redfern. He is a full-time author and journalist specializing in a wide range of unsolved mysteries for over 30 years. 
to include UFO sightings, alien abductions, paranormal phenomena, cryptozoology, and men in black. That'll be the topic tonight. He writes regularly for the London Daily Express newspaper, Fortune in Times, Fate, and UFO magazine. His previous books include Strange Secrets, Cosmic Clashes, and the FBI Files. Among his many exploits, Redfern has investigated reports of lake monsters in Scotland, vampires in Puerto Rico, and werewolves in England, aliens in Mexico, sea serpents in the U.S. Really? Redfern travels and lectures extensively around the world, originally from England. He currently lives in Dallas, Texas, and it's really going to be my first line of inquiry to find out why a Brit would decide to settle in Dallas. I wonder if he wears a 10-gallon hat, straps to the side, and all that stuff. Hey, everybody, raging in the night, this is Midnight in the Desert. She's got something Midnight in the Desert is pounding packets your way on the Dark Matter Digital Networks. To call the show, please direct your finger digits to dial 1-952-225-5278. That's 1-952-CALL-ART. that be me. Hi, everybody. Let's do it, shall we? Um, I have a lot to learn about men in black. Nick Redfern, welcome to Midnight in the Desert. Hey, Art. Thanks for having me on. Uh, well, thanks for being here. Uh, I am curious, Nick. It just doesn't seem to me that most Brits would pick up and like go to Texas. How, <laughs> how did that happen? Um, well, you mentioned in my uh, bio that you know I work as a writer and also a journalist, and I do a lot of um, freelance work for for other authors as well, like hired research and things like that, and. Uh, I actually got offered a, a job which went on for about three years, and uh, but it required me to be over here because the uh, the person who was employed me was writing a book and needed somebody to do the research for him. But a lot of it was based around the Dallas area, and so um, you know it, it sounded like a, a cool gig to do, and um, so I came over and um, I got the job and. Uh, then applied for residency and did all the uh, all the legal paperwork stuff, uh, just in case Donald Trump's listening. Yeah, actually, you know what? I uh, I hear your British accent is fading a bit. Is uh, it really? Frank, yes, it is. Um, oh well, are well you, it has been fifteen years. So. Are you are you uh, yet saying y'all? No, I've never actually got around to doing that yet, and I don't have the, uh, <laughs> the ten gallon hat quite yet. But, uh, <laughs> I like the Dallas area, you know, it's sort of a cool city and uh, it's got a good, uh, you know, social scene and um, not far away from Austin and San Antonio, so, um, you know, it's uh, it's sort of central and, uh, yeah, I've, as I said, I've been here 15 years, did all the uh, the legal immigration stuff and... Um, Isn't that fun? Um, it, well, it was, 
it was just a... I didn't have any problems with it. I mean, it was just a case of filling out the paperwork and just waiting for the, you know, the return of the paperwork and then the next document has to be signed and so on. But so, but there was no, there were no issues as such. It was just, uh, you know, just a, a process I expected to go through where they interview you, of course, and um, background checks and that kind of thing, which is, you know, which which makes sense. And um, and that was it. Everything was sort of very smooth, cordial, and weren't really any problems at all. Really glad it went well for you. Um, all right, so. It's hard to get started with this kind of thing. I guess you don't meet a, you don't get to Men in Black until you get to UFOs. Is that fair? Well, you know, for, for the most part, it is. Yes. I mean, everybody thinks of the Men in Black, and they obviously think of UFOs. And I think for the general public, because of the success of the Men in Black movies, you know, their first thought is Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones in terms of you know, how the Men in Black look and act. But uh, if you look at the real reports of the Men in Black, they're actually very, very different. They're sort of um, quite creepy and strange, and um, they're not always tied with UFOs, although for the most part they are. But there's so many different strands and angles to the Men in Black mystery that that's what, what, what makes it so fascinating, you know, in terms of, well, who are they, what do they want, and where, they are, where are they from? There are so many different issues and cases and odd quirks in relation to the men in black that, uh, you know, I've actually written three books on the subject because there's so much information and so many different theories for who or what they are. Would you guess that their original mission began with um, trying to stop uh, UFO stories in their tracks? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, the, the so-called modern era of UFOs began in 47 with Kenneth Arnold's famous sighting over Washington State, the Cascade Mountains. However, the although there were one or two early Men in Black reports in 47 and 48, for the most part, the whole thing didn't really kick off until 1951. And this revolved around a guy named Albert Bender, who lived in Bridgeport, Connecticut, and um, Albert Bender was someone who set up an organization called the International Flying Saucer Bureau. And there were a lot of small UFO groups, regional groups at the time, around the United States, the UK, and a few other countries, such as Australia. Um, and they may have had a, a circulation of 40 or 50 here, something like that. But Bender's organization, the IFSB, really took off big time. Uh, to the point where he literally had circulations in the low thousands, which which was really good, you know, for 1951-52. And the subscriptions were coming in from all around the world, and the, the magazine that he put out under the International Flying Saucer Bureau banner was doing really well. You know, he's having uh, sighting reports sent to him. He's been asked to do radio shows and... Uh, even TV shows, and uh, everything was running smoothly until suddenly the Men in Black intruded on his life, and it all went downhill from there for Albert Bender, and it was a very sinister situation for him. Can you describe uh, what happened to him? Did he describe it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, what happened was, as I said, you know, the, the image that most people have of the Men in Black is from the movies, you know, the idea of a 
a super secret group within government or some sort of like a black budget program that operates outside of government. So in other words, people need, need, need to understand that uh, the movies followed the reality, not, not the reality following the movies. Well, the, the, certainly the movies were based upon, um, you know, the, 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 the real reports in terms of how they dressed and the threat. Right. But if you read from, uh, from Bender's experiences onwards, the men in black in reality actually don't sound physically and, you know, in terms of what they look like, like their movie versions. For example, pretty much a good, I would say, 95, 96% of all the cases and this begins with Bender. Um, the, the witnesses described them as sort of only about five feet tall to five feet five. Very strange looking, very pale skin, um, no blemishes or lines on their faces, almost as if they looked like a, like a mannequin in some respect. I was going to say um, an alien. Well, actually, you know, that, that's one of the things. I mean, you mentioned, for example, um, David Jacobs. I mean, the the interesting thing about the Men in Black mystery is there are some eerily uh, close parallels with some of the things that David Jacobs has written about and, and researched that ties in with the Men in Black. In other words, very sort of human-looking entities moving amongst us, but when you have a good look at them, there are things about them that just don't seem right. And that's what Albert Bender said, that um, he would get... Not so much visitations, but he talked about how he would see these shadowy figures, and in some cases they would even sort of literally materialize in his bedroom. Mm. And um, he described them as having, as I said, very pale skin. Um, I guess today, you know, we would talk about them almost looking sort of overly Botoxed, you know, um, very strange looking, emotionless, no lines. And Bender said that they essentially spoke to him in a telepathic fashion and warned him to leave the UFO subject and um, and Bender like a I guess like a good UFO researcher he did as he was told <laughs> uh, he left the subject oh he, he did he caved in oh, yeah. yeah he absolutely caved in and um, what happened was that he closed the IFSB down the International Flying Saucer Bureau wow. Cancelled his magazine, and a lot of people who subscribed to it, as I said in the thousands, thought this was some kind of publicity stunt. You know, when you see a band and they say they're going on their final tour, so you better come and see us now, and right. then they come back five years later. That didn't happen. That's what everybody thought, though. And Bender was so petrified by these repeated encounters, and he said he saw the men in black sometimes following him in the streets late at night if he'd be coming home from the cinema and they'd have these sort of long black trench coats on and black fedoras and these piercing eyes and it was sort of very menacing and almost in, in some respects his stories not so much um, Men in Black it's almost like X-Files meets H.P. Lovecraft it's sort of like a gothic mm. horror story mixed in with UFO conspiracies. Well, you, you realize that um, his his behavior, as you described it, could be um, uh, described as a classic uh, psychological symptom as well. Uh, oh, paranoia. Yeah, paranoia. Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt that, that Bender was paranoid. I guess the thing is, you know, was it a, a psychological paranoia or was he driven to paranoia? Uh, or was it possibly both? And what's interesting that in terms of Bender's story, it's a fascinating one because he was a very 
um, sort of fascinating character with a lot of you know facets to his character in terms of he was deeply involved in the occult for example I mean heavily in sort of seriously dark occult uh, okay. things he actually created for example what he described as an altar in his attic to oh. travel places to try and summon up supernatural entities oh and, um, and he actually wondered if it kind of opened a portal or a doorway to allow something paranormal through that that was one of the theories he looked at but yeah i mean you can look at some of the aspects of bender's life and see that there were significant psychological issues by his own admission um he developed ocd obsessive compulsive disorder but he mm. said that was due to the fact that he would he became so terrified by this situation you know he'd be repeatedly checking the front doors were locked at night and the windows were locked and then he'd go and check again and that kind of overtook his life so you know it's a case of which came first um and did one provoke the other so it, you know it's a fascinating case history of a man steeped in paranoia and at the heart of it all these sort of almost gothic men in black well you know you know uh, nick i think that it's more than just a theory i think that if you um if you put up an altar as you mentioned if you call upon these things uh to be part of your life if you want to be involved with them that is a very, very strong invitation in the paranormal world for whatever's out there to come and, uh, uh, ha at the very least, have a look. And, yeah, I, I mean, you open something, you allow something in, and once it's in, it doesn't always like a good visitor leave on time. No, you're right. And, I mean, I've done a lot of investigations in, and interviews with people who've sort of delved into, you know, paranormal phenomena, think it's all cool and exciting, and the more they get into it, they find themselves, I guess, surrounded by entities that they've called forth, that they're not really sure what they are, but, you know, they cause havoc in people's lives. Oh, they do. All right, Nick, uh, hold tight. Nick Redfern is my guest. We're going to be deep into the men in black this night. Now keep that in mind if you have a UFO sighting. Because I guess these guys are still out there working. I'm Art Bell. Some velvet morning when I was breaking I'm gonna Midnight sweeps across America. You've found an oasis for the mind. To call Midnight in the Desert, please dial 1-952-CALL-ART. That's 1-952-225-5278. That's so sets the atmosphere, doesn't it? Hi, everybody. I'm Art Bell. My guest is Nick Redfern. And we are discussing men in black. Um, actually, a very, very serious subject. Certainly it was to Albert Bender. And... Um, Gee, Nick, uh, I don't know what to say, uh, except if he actually, you know, publicized, told everybody that these guys came to see him and then really threw it in and never came back, no publicity stunt, then I guess, uh, 
I guess he really met them. Mm. Well, what happened, um, Art, was that um, this was sort of 52, 53, when he finally threw in the towel, so to speak, and a guy named Gray Barker, who was fascinated by Bender's story, wrote a book about it in 1956 called They Knew Too Much About Flying Saucers, which told parts of Bender's story, but only the parts that Bender wanted to share, and it certainly didn't go into all the bizarre paranormal stuff that... Uh, Bender talks about himself um, but what happened was he just very briefly resurfaced in 1962 when Barker who was also a publisher convinced Bender to write his own book which he did it was called Flying Saucers and the Three Men and it was a very small book but told the story of how these men in black um, would sort of appear and materialize and dematerialize and they had more of like almost like a demonic quality to them I guess and um, but then he, when he put that book out he, then he said look I'm done with it and that was now 53 years ago and he, and he stayed out of the UFO subject for the rest of his entire life and would not correspond with anyone he wouldn't even promote the book barely after it came out he just essentially wrote it because you know Barker asked him to and that was it and uh, and he walked away from the subject and uh, that's actually not something you see very often in the UFO subject where you know if somebody says you know I'm quitting that's it I'm done they typically do come back here Bender I am proof of that did. yes <laughs> Bender never did he just stayed away and, and and said I'm done with it he just in his own words pretty much he said he just felt that he couldn't get into the, that sort of um, turmoil of dealing with what he initially assumed were going to be government people, and then when the when he got the visit, so to speak, they were anything but that. They were, as I said, as I said, they were far more H.P. Lovecraft than they were the X Files. Mm -hmm. Well, it's not easy to be visited by people like that, especially ones that communicate with you. My God. So, um, was that the first Men in Black th that you're aware of visit? Well, there are one or two earlier ones, but that's, oh. without doubt, the Bender case is the one that really began the entire Men in Black mystery. And it was actually Gray Barker's book that told the story of the Men in Black, that coined the term Men in Black. Barker, in 1956, was the first person to use the term men in black as a you know as a as a specific term to describe these entities so in that sense it's a very important case but it opened the doors for some people who said well this is really interesting because i had an experience very much like that but before that date but in other so in other words bender did prompt some people to come forward who claimed earlier reports with the men in black but had Bender's story not been the first one that got so popularized, those no. other ones probably wouldn't have come forward. I wonder if the three wise men were counseled that, that no, you don't see that star. Well, you know, that's interesting because, as I said, Bender's book was called Flying Saucers and the Three Men. And the reason why it was called that is because typically the men in black turn up in groups of three. Mm -hmm. Now, there have been reports of one and two, uh, but for the most part, it's three. So, you know, that, that's an interesting angle. <laughs> well, <laughs> uh, all right. So, obviously, since that time, not, not the mm -hmm. time I mentioned, the one you mentioned in uh, yep. the 50s following 47, I guess, um, there have been many, many, many incidences of men in black. I, I think uh, even Dan Aykroyd reported them, right? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, the men in black, uh, a lot of people don't realise the sheer number of reports that surface. I mean, I mentioned at the beginning, I've written three books on the men in black, and the most recent one, which is just called, or actually the brand new one, which came out last week, The Men in Black. Um, what I found is, and I think most authors get this, when you write on a particular subject, people who've had their own experiences oh, yes. tend to contact you on, you know, on that subject. In same, other words, same exact thing happens to talk show hosts, of course. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. And, uh, you know, if somebody writes a book on crop circles, people contact them about crop circles. Right. Well, Having written, you know, extensively on the men in black, I probably get, I would say, somewhere in the region of 40 or 50 reports um, a year, something like that, like one or two a week, something maybe close to. Um, and the reports I get, you know, sometimes they are older cases, but many of them are literally right up to the present day. I mean, the new book's got cases from 2000. 14 and 2015. Okay, well, if you're still getting reports of MIB visits, then I am very, very curious because, you know, it, if I were an entity, let's say a government entity that were dispatching these men in black, and that's just sort of a little setup there, I, I wouldn't be so concerned about it anymore because there are so many reports of flying objects now that uh, to send men in black, it seems to me, would just punctuate uh, and enhance the the re the report of the person uh, who who made it. No, that's a good point, and you're right. And but I think one of the important things to note is most of the people who report the MIB today, they actually sound far more like what we say with David Jacobs was talking about. You know that they look semi-human, but they camouflage themselves with fedora yes. hats and black, black wraparound sunglasses, yes. turned-up collars. And in many respects, you know, the sort of things David's been talking about, you can actually make a good case that the men in black could be an aspect of that sort of an infiltration. Okay. You know, All right. Now, you've done it. You've brought up David Jacobs' name, Dr. Jacobs' name, several times, and I've held myself back, uh, but I can't do it anymore. I did I did a show with him uh the other night. I don't know if you're aware of that or not. Yes, I was, yeah. One hell of a show, if I do say so myself. And what he described uh was an alien invasion, Nick, and um maintains that we are in the middle of that invasion right now by creatures that are part human and part not human. And that these creatures um have the ability to read minds and that this uh, invasion is going along quite swimmingly. And I, I wonder if you would care to comment. I found it particularly chilling and, and surely possible. And I wonder how you feel about it. Well, yeah, I mean, it's one of these situations where I actually take a lot of notice of what David Jacobs has written, particularly like in his earlier book, The Threat. The main reason being because having written about the men in black for so long, I've noticed a lot of deep parallels between the two phenomena and um, I mean for example in the new book I've got cases where people have said the men in black have visited them and as I've said earlier they have this strange skin uh, some witnesses said they lack pores uh, or you know they're just it's not a single line on their face at, mm. at all um, and as bizarre as it sounds some of the men in black are described as wearing clearly wearing wigs and in some cases where it looks like they've got sort of 
like makeup on to even try and make their skin look more healthy and human looking. Mm. So you get a lot of really bizarre things like this, you know, and um and if it was people making it up, I think they would make up something along the lines of, you know, the Will Smith, Tommy Lee Jones movie image because that's a popular culture image. They wouldn't be making up bizarre stories like this, which you can find all across the planet. And um, so a lot of the stories I get do, do actually sort of eerily parallel these stories of human-alien hybrids that kind of look like us, but if, you, you know, if, you, if you're walking down the street late at night and the person or the thing has got the collar turned up and a hat on, you probably wouldn't notice too much. You see them in the daylight and you, you know, you bump into them by mistake and you, for a second or two you get a good look at them, then you might think, wow, has that person got a strange genetic condition or something like that? So in other words, it's uh, not out of, out of reason that uh, the creatures you're describing, I use that word instead of humans, uh, the creatures you're describing could be very much like what Dr. Jacobs is describing. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, the, the whole issue of, of the camouflage, you know, the sunglasses and moving about in the streets. I yes. mean, that's what the men in black have done for a long time. So I wonder if, you know, we're actually dealing with uh, an almost identical or if not identical phenomenon. Um, but there's had different ways over the years of targeting us. Now, you know, the stuff that David talks about is more along you know, like a large-scale infiltration. Yes. Back in the... Back in the 50s and 60s, you know, the reports weren't on that scale. So that, in one respect, you could make a case, I guess, that the men in black were more of like the initial front line yes. that first went out. All right, know? well, imagine this for a moment. Imagine this for a moment, Nick. Uh, excuse me. But if sure. their original mission, as we touched on at the beginning, was to squash UFO reports, that's uh, reports of ships in our atmosphere. Um, now... Imagine how important to the same group it would be to squash talk of an actual ongoing invasion of our planet. Mm -hmm. It seems to me that would be very high on their list. Well, yeah, you're right. And I think, you know, the, the issue of these entities visiting people's homes and, you know, the witnesses clearly realizing that these aren't normal-looking people um, demonstrates a couple of things, to me at least. One may be they're trying to sort of test the waters as to how successfully or not they get recognized for what they are or for what they're not, mm. you know. I mean, the, the, the witness response is usually, oh, my God, that person was five feet tall, they looked anemic and 120 pounds, and had bulging eyes hidden behind these big sunglasses. They knew they weren't dealing with, you know, sort of 1950s era G-men as they were known from the FBI. You know, that they, they clearly weren't anything along those lines. But, um, you know, the, most of the reports, as I said, were extremely strange and Bender kicked it all off. And then obviously through the 60s, um, it just continued. A lot of people like, uh, Brad Steiger, you know, very, famous figure in the whole uh, paranormal field. Um, I know I know Brad and Sherry very well. Oh, great. Well, um, yeah, I mean, Brad, in the, in the new book I've got out, Man in Black, uh, Brad actually 
uh, very kindly wrote an entire paper about his own personal experiences with the men in black and how they even uh, impacted on his friends and started to threaten his friends. Um, wow. Essentially, you know, to try and get the word back to him, I guess, to to leave it all alone. And uh, so even Brad himself found himself um, infected, I guess, is, a, you know, not a bad term to use when you consider uh, how these things work. Well, you know... <laughs> People are funny. I mean, they, they say, oh, man, he gave in. But if somebody came to you, somebody of questionable origins, <laughs> let's put it that way, and, and uh, threatened you and uh, even more so threatened your family, mm-hmm. I think most people in this audience, especially at the threat of family, would leave it the heck alone. Well, I think they would, I think they would leave it alone in... Maybe, but I mean, I'm sort of, I'm the sort of character when, you know, if somebody says don't do this, it's like a red rag to a bull, as they say, you know what I mean? I do. Uh, but when, but when it's, it's family, when it's family... Well, that's, that's true, yeah. I mean, it's one thing to investigate UFOs, it's another thing to have your, your family threatened. Um, so, you know, I do understand that. Equally, I also think, you know, that I, I would like to think if they ever sort of knocked on my door... I would stand up to them. But one of the interesting things, and again with parallel with what David Jacobs says, is that the men in black seem to have the ability to affect people's minds, you know, not just mind reading, but mind control almost, to where the person essentially becomes um, like a slave during the interrogation. And um, Ding, ding, ding. Yeah, so, you know, I mean, you imagine most people wouldn't, knock, wouldn't open the door at midnight or 11 o'clock to three creepy-looking little guys with white faces, but people do let them in. And this suggests to me a degree of... Uh, control? Something along the lines of mind control, mind manipulation, that makes the person um, lose control of their um, sort of self-awareness and also their common sense factors, where it's like everything goes out the window and they just invite these people or these things in and then they get threatened and it's almost like the person's in a haze throughout the entire experience and yes. then when they've left they start to come out of it as, as if someone's coming out almost like of anaesthetic you know and um why did i let them in why did i listen to what they had to say this is why i'm so concerned about what dr jacobs is saying because what possible what possible defense do we have against Creatures who can control our minds, our thoughts. Not much, Nick. No, you're right. I mean, again, most of the reports I have of when the men in black enter people's homes, if not all of them, um, the first thing that's weird is that, you know, as I said, they turn up usually at night, 10, 9, 10, 11 o'clock onwards when it's pitch black. Um, the person hears a knock at the door. And even if they look through the spy hole, if they've got one, and they see these entities there, they still open the door and let them in. And what's weird is that the men in black rarely ever come in until they're ever invited in, and that kind of fits in with the old vampire parallels. Of, <laughs> That's uh, what I was going to say, yeah. You know, yeah, you know, and, and they kind of look like pale-faced vampires, so I do wonder if... Well, you know what, you know what, um, Nick, maybe when you look through that little peephole at them, instead of seeing three little five-foot guys dressed eerily... Uh, they see instead either a friendly neighbor or perhaps a relative, and and of course then they open the door and just say, "Come on in." 
Well, that's not impossible. And, you know, all this makes me wonder if a lot of ancient stories of vampires may have been very, very early reports of men in black type entities. But uh, but when they enter the home, as I said, they... they often ask the most bizarre questions and don't seem conversant with our mannerisms properly. They don't seem to know how to handle knives and forks or cups and, you know, liquid and things like this. They kind of just stare at it as if they're not really sure what they should do with it even. Um, and so it all gets very strange. And as I said, there's no doubt there's a degree of mind control involved with this, with this entire phenomenon. That's why I think they're so elusive, because... You know, Nick, uh, you, just, you just said something that, again, parallels exactly what Dr. Jacobs was saying. He was saying that uh, many times these creatures uh, that he described, these mixes, um, are unable to do the simplest things and have to be taught that they can sit back i think he used the, the, the expression uh, of sitting in a couch and and had they had to actually be instructed that they could lean back because there was a backing to the couch and that's very close to what you're describing now oh it is i mean there are a lot of reports there was actually a famous case where a man in black was given um, some jello and couldn't figure out how to eat the jello uh, and tried uh, to uh. do it with his fingers and <laughs> Uh, I mean, it sounds bizarre, but when you find, as I've got, I mean, literally, well, now, hundreds of reports from all across the world um, where, you know, people clearly don't know each other, but there are certain little bits of data which fit in, like, you know, them acting strange, not understanding something that would be so easy for us to understand, and even, you know, the issue of the, the lack of any lines on their skin and, and not really being sure if they're entirely human or not and um, you know just there's so many interesting parallels like that where you can clearly place these things here there and everywhere and, and that is the scary thing I mean I've investigated cases from the US from Puerto Rico uh, from Canada from the UK from Australia uh, I've got a couple of Russian reports and a few from Mexico and, and a few from South America so you know that's pretty much two-thirds of the globe has anybody ever recorded a man in black? Um, nobody's ever audio recorded one, but um, back in the 60s, uh, a couple of researchers, Tim Beckley and uh, Jim Mosley, um, actually photographed one. Now, I oh. actually included the photograph in my second book on the man in black, which was called The Real Man in Black, and that one includes the photo, and, and there is this guy, he's got like a long black trench coat, uh, black fedora, black sunglasses, and he's just staring oddly and outwardly. He looks just sort of zombified, you know, in almost like a, a blank state. Mm -hmm. And the reason why they took the photograph is because for several days, for like an hour every morning, he was stood outside the Jersey City home of a UFO researcher, uh, or two researchers, Jack and Mary Robinson. And um, Mary got frightened when Jack went to work one day, and this character turned up, and Jim and Tim Beckley raced over and managed to get a photograph of him. They, they literally drove past during rush hour, where he was just standing in the recess of this old building in the shadows, staring right at um, Jack and Mary's apartment window. And uh, if you see the picture, it, it does look really weird. He kind of looks just totally emotionless and 
flatlined almost and uh but you know this zombie like a, a well-dressed zombie is best, the best way to describe him Nick, so uh, have you heard of any physical confrontations oh what do you mean like altercations that kind of thing like that yes yeah uh, yeah there's a few but not many and that's interesting because if people are able to sort of break out of this mind control state so occasionally some of them have stood up and found themselves actually, you know, their mindset returning to normal as if they'd broken the spell almost. And they threatened the men in black to leave or they threatened to call the police, etc. And instead of, you know, responding with violence, the men in black quickly made their excuses and left as if they didn't want a confrontation. All right, hold it right there. We're at a break point and uh, we'll be back. Nick Redburn and men in black, that's what we're talking about. It sounds eerily like the interview we did the other night. This really is eerie. I'm Art Bell, Midnight in the Desert, Raging in the Night. speed of light in the darkness. This is Midnight in the Desert with Art Bell. Now, here's Art. Here I am. Riders on the storm. I hope we're not riders on the invasion. I really do. I'm beginning to wonder, frankly. Nick Redfern is my guest. We are discussing men in black. And uh, they sound eerily like the things that were described the other day. Incredible. Nick, uh, welcome back. We Thanks, were, guys. yeah, we were talking about the uh, possibility of uh, there having been um, physical altercations. Yeah, th- this is where it gets interesting because the men in black come across very menacing and threatening and intimidating, but a lot of it is sort of very much psychological, and it works as you know, the Albert Bender case shows, and as many cases show. However, there have been a few occasions where the person has felt almost under some sort of hypnotic spell, but they've been able to break out of it. <laughs> and their sort of common sense factors have come back to them, and they tell the men in black, get out of the house, I'm calling the police. Now, given you know their sort of menacing approach and the way they look, you might imagine the MIB would... As we would sort of just put on the you know the fear factor even worse, but that doesn't happen. Typically, what does happen is that the MIB quickly find a way to leave the house, you know, mm. as, as soon as possible. They actually don't go in for physical confrontation. They uh, they make their excuses and leave. And so in, in other words, it, once once they do not have control or realize they don't have control of you, they're out of there. Yeah, and that is an interesting thing because it suggests that the, it suggests to me the reason they place people in a mind-controlled state is because physically they're quite vulnerable. Because as I said, you know they're they're sort of five feet, five feet five, mm-hmm. hundred and twenty pounds, look sickly. You know they don't look well. Um, but while they have you rendered into an altered state, they're fully in control. You break out of it. They're the most vulnerable things in the room, you know, and I think that's an important 
factor to remember that they always ensure to find a way to be in control of the situation and if it breaks down they quickly know enough that it's time to leave so I think you know those patterns are, are important as well Is there a link uh, Nick between men in black and these reports I've been hearing of black eyed children Yes, well, there actually is. I mean, again, in the new book, Men in Black, um, David Weatherly, who wrote the, the book uh, Black Eyed Children, uh, David wrote in a, a paper for me for the book um, discussing the parallels between the MIB and the Black Eyed Children. There's some really interesting ones. For example, I mean, for the, the first thing is, of course, the clothing. Now, the Men in Black, you know, wear black suits and black fedoras. Well, the kids, you know, they wear black hoodies, so they, the colour of the clothing's the same, and they also wear something on their head to partly mask their face or and the head, you know. Uh, so the many black fedoras, the black-eyed children, hoodies. Um, most of the reports of the black-eyed children, they try and find ways to force their way into people's homes. You know, can we use the telephone? Um, you know, can, can you give us some money or some food, uh, things like that. There's always some sort of way that the black-eyed children try to get in the house. Typically, they, they look pale and also, which is uh, the same with the men in black, and also they typically surface at night, which is also a classic aspect of men in black encounters. So, in other words, there are five or six extremely similar parallels between the MIB and the black-eyed children. And again, I kind of speculate that the whole situation is based around mind control. You know, find a way into the person's home, and then when you're on their territory and you're sitting or standing right opposite them, then they can, you know, make the mind control angle work. And, and David makes, in this paper he wrote for me, he makes a lot of very good sense in terms of demonstrating that the Men in Black mystery and the Black Eyed Children mystery are actually sort of two components of, of one bigger issue. And, uh, and of course, this brings into other uh, things that have surfaced in the last few years, um, sort of paranormal type things, like the shadow people, the hat man, oh. the grinning man. And they, they all, the hat man, the grinning man, the shadow people, they all kind of seem um, to come from sort of the same... Um, body if you like um, you know they all have their, their deep similarities even though there are you know some differences as well okay well I've had a, a shadow person experience which, which honestly scared the tar out of me uh, Nick I'm, I'm sorry but it really it terrorized me um, in my in my ham shack uh, at the main house about mm, two, three weeks before the show, doing research for the show, late at night, and uh, there was one, I, I looked to my right, I, saw, I guess something caught my eye, I looked to the right, and here was this, you know, now that you mention it, probably not very tall at all, about five feet tall, a human body, not arms extended, arms would be down, but you could tell it was a a human-like or humanoid-type body. That's about as far as I can go. You could actually see through it partially. And I startled, and I, I started to turn around, and the damn thing was behind me, and again, I could see through it. And then 
I'm at this point really freaked out, and I turn to my left, which is where the door would be to get the heck out of that room. And uh, there it was to my left. It eventually just went kind of like like that, and it was gone. Uh, but it was real. I'm telling you, Nick, it was a, a real something. I don't know what. But are you saying there is a relationship between these sort of shadow people or whatever they are and uh, and Men in Black? Oh, yeah. I mean, one of the interesting things that just stood out for me, what you just said, um, that, you know, you saw this shadow person when you were doing research for the show, etc. Well, this actually ties in with this paper that Brad Steiger did for the book where Brad was looking into things and it was if the Men in Black knew. In other words, in the same way that he was doing research and they seemed to know and, and began threatening him and also via his mm. friends, you know, you were looking into something and they seem to know, you know, in the sense that they appeared or one appeared. And I get that so much in Men in Black and Hat Man and Shadow People type reports where it's like when you, when you kind of think of them, they seem to have an awareness that um, people are thinking of them and they can lock onto the people who might, if you like, be looking for the answers and then, you know, they can target them with a potential threat. But, um, I mean, within the shadow people controversy, there's, which, again, I talk about in the book, there's this sort of subcategory known as the hat man, which looks like a shadow person in the sense that it's, it's shadowy, but it, like the man in black, it's, it's typically seen wearing an old-style fedora. But often it's described as like a black silhouette rather than having sort of a, a substantial form. You know, it's sort of a cross between a, a physical entity and a, and a spectre, if you like. But it looked, but the outline looks like a man in black. And then there's another one which is often seen in a, uh, like a black suit and often a fedora as well, known as a grinning man, where it has this sort of macabre grin on its face, almost sort of, um, you know, just static, unmoving, you know, as if that's its only, um, the, the only impression, you know, the only sort of uh, face it has. And, uh, and they're sort of, sort of amongst the sort of creepiest uh, stories of the grinning man, that people have seen these things, you know, they'll wake up in the middle of the night and able to move, and there's this very often tall and thin, you know, actually the opposite, the men in black are quite small, but tall and thin, wearing a black suit, skinny black tie, black fedora, white face, but has this sort of really malevolent grin on its face, just staring at the person. Mm. You know, those reports of, I mean, I know from the people I've spoken to and written about, it, probably I mean, amongst some of the most chilling ones. All right, well, would you put these, and I know it's tough to put a label on it, all these things, but number one, you seem to think they're related. Number two uh, would be the question, do you think it's in the field of the paranormal or just some weird government agency? I mean, there, somewhere in that range you must have a, a point of view. Yeah, I mean, I, I would put them in a, a paranormal um and push them down, like down the paranormal pathway, if you like. Now, of course, it all depends on what we mean by paranormal. You know, I mean, we could place certainly some aspects of the UFO phenomenon have sort of paranormal overtones to them, and certainly Albert Bender's cases with, you know, uh, setting up 
supernatural altars to open portals and doorways and things like this. And uh, I've got some cases where people, for example, have uh, been visited by men in black, but there was actually no UFO component, but they've been dabbling with Ouija boards. Um, I've got a few other cases where they the men in black appeared, and then after the men in black left, they experienced violent poltergeist activity in the home. So there's we very weird stuff like that. So for the most part, I, d I don't dispute that government agencies might, on occasion, have sort of mimicked the weird men in black as a means to get information out of witnesses. In other words, so it gets really complicated that there could be more than one category. Um, but for the most part, I think these MIB are something that is totally 100% un unconnected to government at all. And I go down the path of something that has appears to display supernatural powers in terms of how it controls people, but which is clearly a physical thing, and which is trying its best to look as human as it can, but very often doesn't do a very good job of doing it. Well, Nick, they're certainly emulating uh, the feds in one sense. I mean, when feds, yes. when feds come to see you, they are intimidating. That's all there is to it. I mean, generally, they wear dark clothes. They've got the sunglasses. I've had a number of encounters with them. They're not exactly men in black, but they're not far off either. So there's a kind of an intimidation in having two guys who look like this show up at your door. Yeah, and I think, you know, you, you can make a good argument that um, a great deal of research might have gone into it on their part to find the most way, intimidating, intimidating way to approach people and what better than turn up at midnight with a black fedora black trench coat you know and super white skin and sunglasses even in a group of three and just scare the living daylights out of people mm -hmm. and um, and it works you know I think that motif that imagery of sort of the fedora and the trench coat it almost it goes back to sort of you know, sort of film noir type things and Humphrey Bogart gangster movies. People have that image of sort of the chilling, menacing man in black, you know. Well, it works. It does. It does. And that's that's our, you know, for us, that's the downside of it all is that, um, you know, people find themselves in, in really dangerous situations. I, I mean, I've seen, spoken to people who felt their lives were sort of psychologically scarred by these encounters. I mean... One of the reports I, I included in the new book um, was from someone who was told this story back in the 1930s, you know, a very old guy now, and he kept quiet about it for years, you know, fearful of, if I say too much, are they going to come after me? And of just course. on this story. And I get so many like that where somebody will say, you know, I'm 62 now or whatever, and this happened to me when I was 17. And I, and I know what's coming next, that they're going to say, um, well, I didn't want to talk about it because the first visit was enough and I never wanted to see him again, so I stayed quiet for 40 years. Well, again, you've had so many reports now, Nick, that I, I really have to ask, do you notice anything in the demographics? Do you notice anything in the, in the type of people that, that are contacted? Do you notice any similarities or many similarities in the stories that people tell you, or what? Mm. Well, actually, that's a good point, because, yeah, there are certain things you can look for that you do see 
quite prevalent, you know, through a lot of these reports. One, as I said, is the fact that most of them turn up at night, and I don't think that's coincidence. You know, if you're trying to blend in and you're walking around the streets, the best way to do it is when it's more and more difficult to see it, which is obviously after the sun's gone down. Um, now, in terms of the people who actually get the visit, this, I think, is one of the reasons why it's been so difficult to predict where and when they might turn up. And that's specifically because it really is at random. You know, if it was just UFO researchers, well, you know, we could all keep a lookout for each other. But, I mean, I've got some reports where it's abductees that got visited or contactees. But then again, I've got other cases where somebody just saw a light in the sky, you know, which could have been, a, it was no more spectacular than a satellite, but they happened to tell the local newspaper, you know, it appeared in the newspaper and then they get the visit. But there was nothing substantial or sensational about the report at all. Um, I've got other cases where, for example, as I mentioned, you know, there was the Ouija board um, connection and that's totally, you know, totally separate to the people who claimed UFO encounters. So, in other words, it's, it's even I have to grudgingly admit, it's been incredibly difficult to try and predict where and when they might turn up because their activity is so bizarre and as random as, uh, as the reports are in terms of, you know, where they occur, when and why. But um, what I can say is that for the most part, the, the people who get the visit have had some sort of profound UFO encounter and it's typically been where I, I guess it, the, the person had more of like a close encounter possibly with entities or you know they've seen something land and you know it hasn't just been a light in the sky or even just you know a disc in the sky it's been something more intriguing and um, but you know these reports surface everywhere i mean literally you know the the length and breadth of the entire planet and um so we're clearly seeing uh, a program ongoing um and you know the the other big issue of course is the the mode by which they ask the questions you know it's all very skillfully played out all right how how yeah. if, I, if i might how often uh in the reports nick is it vocal versus uh some sort of telepathic method well, that's a, that's a good question. I'll tell you why, Art, because the men in black often do ask questions, but they're often asked in sort of a very stilted, cautious way. Um, one witness actually described it, uh, the speech, as something along the lines of, per, of a person who might have a bad stutter and who has to really concentrate to, you know, overcome the stutter. So they, they sleep, speak slowly and deliberately. And um, a lot of people have said something along those lines. Now, what's really weird is that I've probably got nine or ten cases where the witnesses, none of them knew each other, but they said something which was almost identical. And they felt that the men in black, when they're asking the questions, that they were saying the words in almost like parrot fashion, in the sense that they didn't understand what they were saying, but they were just programmed to say you know, or ask certain questions. You imagine, for example, you know, if you heard um, a 20-second a a recording of somebody speaking in Russian, if you played that over and 
you know, more and more times, you could actually repeat exactly what they were saying, but you wouldn't have any understanding of it. You would just be, you know, you would just be listening to it and then repeating it eventually when you'd got it. And that's what a lot of people have said. As I said, I've got like, you know, more than a handful of reports where people have said they didn't actually think the men in black, for whatever reason, they, they didn't feel the men in black actually understood what they were saying. There was all, it was almost as if they were sort of biological robots program to perform a, spe a specific task and go out there and um, you know interview the people or silence them uh, one or two people have described it as almost like the Matrix movies where in the Matrix films you know you have these men in black that actually aren't real they're sort of like a simulation inserted into the program to uh, ensure that the secrets of the Matrix you know we don't find out we're all living in this weird dream world and some of the witnesses have said things along those lines that they felt that it, the event was almost like holographic as if it was staged for them um, rather than a, a, like a physical thing you know it was it was almost as if they were in a in a trance and the the men in black were you know that the program inserted onto the onto the hard drive so to speak well, it is to me. Uh, here, here comes that word again. But it is terrifying for me to imagine not having uh, the ability to act on my own thoughts, or for that matter, to have my own thoughts, to have yeah. something intervene and and create thoughts in my own mind that I would then act on. That's that's really terrifying. I mean, that's control, right? Well, yeah. I mean, that, and that's that is the worst part of these events is that you know. I'm sure most of the audience listening now would think, well, if they came knocking on my door right in the middle of this show, there's no way I'm going to let them in. And that's what everybody says, but everybody does let them in. Um, and it, as I said, there have been cases where people have broken the spell, and I, I actually think the term spell is actually a quite apt one and relevant one. You know, they feel the spell's broken, then everything goes against the men in black. But as I said, they're astute enough to know that it's it's time to leave. So I think they I think a lot of the mind control is done because physically the men in black are quite vulnerable. You know, and um, they clearly wouldn't win any boxing matches, put it that way. Um, but they don't need to because they have, a, you know, they have far more powerful skills, which essentially plunge us into a state of, uh, like, an altered consciousness state. And uh, Nick, have you uh, have you been contacted? Um, you know, I've never had that sort of knock on the door from the men in black, but what I will tell you, now this, this gets really weird, is that um, I've had a lot of strange telephone experiences, uh, and particularly since the new book's come out, and I, and I swear this is not, you know, some sort of odd alternative marketing ploy, it's really not, but both myself and my um, agent and publisher, Lisa Hagen, We've had a, a bunch of weird um, sort of synchronicity type things go on in relation to the men in black. I mean, I'll give you one classic example of, of actually quite a few. I was in my office about two months ago, and um, I heard a bang coming from one of the other rooms. I thought, well, what was that? It was actually, I could tell it was coming from the bedroom, so I went into the bedroom, and I actually got a framed painting um, of the, the covers of one of my earlier men in black books and it had, uh, it had fallen off the wall and the glass had shattered. Now I've got like eight paintings on that particular wall and I swear that's true. Um, <laughs> this one picture of the men in black fell off the wall, glass was everywhere and it actually happened right when I was opening the Word document of the book to put the final 
edit to it before it went off to Lisa to be published and that was that was just like bizarre but I've, I found that when I'm writing and even talking about the men in black it's as if they kind of know I know that sounds strange and bizarre but it's almost as if you look into them that they have a almost like a radar and um, these things seem to know when you when you're looking for them you know you pop up on their radar so to speak it sounds like somebody's on their way to see you right now that's how good our audio is <laughs> <laughs> I can hear well, the I do live in Dallas. The police are always racing around at this time of night. <laughs> sure. Uh, men in black, I guess, have been known to affect telephone uh, a communication and, as you pointed out earlier, even poltergeist activity, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, again, it's, it's interesting you bring that up because, again, in the new book, I've got an, um, a section from a, a woman named Claudia Cunningham who's had a lot of run-ins with MIB types, but one of the things that um, Claudia talks about in the paper that she, uh, she submitted for the book was that the tremendous amount of weird telephone interference she's had whenever she gets involved with the men in black. And this has ranged from hearing weird electronic noises, bleeps on the phone, to actually outright threats from anonymous sources. And, um, and again, they often have weird tones in their voices and... You know, they just don't sound normal. And, um, you know, so for that reason, um, telephone interference has become a staple part of the Men in Black mystery and um, to the point where, you know, we I won't say we have as many people who've had telephone experiences of visita as have had visitations, but, you know, I would say for every five or six reports I get of just the Men in Black reports, there's probably one or two where the people have said they had other things going on like um, like telephone interference or in a couple of cases, like I said, where furniture would suddenly slide across the room, that mm -hmm. kind of thing. And, um, you know, so he gets into what starts off like an X-Files thing, like I said, actually turns into something really, really weird and, you know, almost supernatural-based. Wow. All right. So they also apparently always drive old 50s, 60s vintage cars, except perhaps back in the beginning with uh, Albert Bender. Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, the, the interesting thing about the men in black is that you would imagine for the most part that they would want to, you know, go under the radar, you know, stay out of people's minds and, and, and eyes. But uh, everything about them does the opposite. It stands out, you know, and is memorable. Everything from the fedora hat and the black suit and the skinny black tie, which obviously wouldn't have looked out of place in the 40s, 50s and 60s, probably even the early 70s. But today, people would look twice. But that hasn't stopped the men in black dressing like that. And you're right, they, they drive, for the most part, sort of old gangster-era Cadillacs, cars like that, you know. And um, But again, what's weird is I've got a few reports where people have said that they came out of this sort of weird stupor and rushed to the window and saw the men in black going down the drive and both the men in black and the car just sort of faded away into nothing as if it never as if it was never really there and these are the people who felt that or actually wondered with hindsight if the event had been sort of almost holographic as if some sort of alien entity had taken control of their mind and rendered them into a state where 
they were almost in like a waking dream. You know, the Men in Black was a, it was a real phenomenon to them, and the, the threat was real, but it was almost like a, a holographic dream rather than a physical thing. And they well, if, if they suddenly, if they suddenly uh, snap out of it, as it were, Nick, and they go to the window and they see the car leaving, an older car leaving, that that would indicate to me that they were you know completely under the influence of these uh, MIBs, and then suddenly. That influence waned as the as the vehicle took off. Yeah, yeah that's, that's quite plausible, yeah. Okay, all right, hold it right there. I'm Mark Bell. This is Midnight in the Desert. Initiate a dialogue sequence with Art Bell. Please coordinate your phalanges and call 1-952-225-5278. That's 1-952-CALL-ART. Well, okay, we're about to open the phone lines, everybody, so why don't you join us? I'm sure you have questions about Men in Black. I know I do. I'm noticing similarities between uh, what Nick is saying and what was said the other night by Dr. Jacobs, and I'm sure you are as well. <sighs> creepy stuff. I, I mean, this really is creepy stuff. Not human? Maybe not. Part human? Possibly. And, you know, I'm... Anyway, let me get the numbers out. If you want to call us, if you have a question, uh, the public number is 1, area code 952-225-5278. Once again... One and then nine five two 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 five five two seven eight. We um, are available on Skype as well. It's easy uh, in North America, Canada, the U.S. MITD fifty one, MITD five one. If you're calling from outside the U.S., we do have um, a Skype connection just for you. Outside the U.S., it's MITD five five as in Midnight in the Desert, 5-5. And uh, all you do is get Skype on your phone. When you get Skype, go to the little plus sign and add us. MITD 5-1 North America, MITD 5-5 Worldwide. Um, Nick, is there any um, suggestion that these could be time travelers? I mean, they are using old vehicles, 50s and 60s cars. Well, that's actually one of the interesting theories that, oh. uh, you know, within the UFO field, uh, there is this sort of subculture that takes the view that what if it's time travelers, not extraterrestrials? And, uh, I mean, there are some interesting things when it comes to that theory. Uh, one being, of course, <coughs> excuse me, um, the obviously out-of-date clothing and the cars. Um, you know, they're trying to fit in, not realizing perhaps if they're from the distant future, hypothetically, of course, how quickly our fashions change. And, um, <laughs> so you'd imagine if that true, if that story was true, or that scenario was true, that they would have realized at least by now that they're not fitting in very well. But, I mean, there are some interesting cases. Uh, John Keel, for example, who wrote The Mothman Prophecies, as well as a number of lot of good books, um, he noted that in many um, 1960s era, many black cases, the many black would ask the witnesses what the time was. 
and they thought, you know, they're asking, well, is it 6.30, is it 7.45? And Keel wondered if they were literally asking, what time is it, you know, as in what era, what year, that kind of thing. And uh, so you do have a few strange stories like that where you could push it down, you know, uh, a time travel pathway. And, of course, this is all dependent on whether or not time travel is actually feasible. But, um, you know, the um, the whole... The whole scenario, I mean, you can actually make a case for it. You know, that, that's one of the interesting things is that why fascinated because there are so many different facets and theories, uh, you know, in relation to the Man in Black. Sure. All right. Let's, uh, let's go to the phone. And uh, overseas, you're on the air, Charles. Hello, this is Charlie in Thailand. Hi there. Hey, Charlie. This is Charlie in Thailand, the place where... Uh, ordinary people believe a lot of extraordinary things as a matter of course. Very pleasant place to live for that reason. I've never seen men in black, but it occurs to me that if there is an alien force that wishes to try to shape uh, human life, one of the ways to gain entry would be with simulated humans uh, that would appear much less frightening in uh, black suits. So maybe that would be a way to... Uh, affect human behavior uh, directly, but without causing a whole huge amount of uh, little green men being seen. Yeah, that's actually a good point, Charlie. I mean, if you look at, for example, you know, sci-fi movies, typically if when an invasion occurs, it's sort of Independence Day style, with you know, with craft in the skies or War of the Worlds or the day the Earth stood still. Um, in many respects, you know, to really have a successful invasion, perhaps the way to do it would be to really do it slowly, carefully and subtly to where we don't even know until it's a case of game over and there's no need for huge 200-foot, 300-foot-wide craft hovering over every city. You know, it could actually be something that we don't realize is going on, you know, under our very eyes, so to speak, because it is so um, unrecognizable to most people because they're not seeing it for what is actually happening. I have a question for the guest. Uh, uh, it occurs to me that the idea that everybody who sees a UFO is crazy and all of that kind of uh, nonsense, it uh, seems to me it's time for everyone just to say, okay, uh, space aliens are real. Let's stop denigrating people uh, and and celebrate them for being honest. Uh, my question is, do you think the seeming uh, increase in the number of UFO-type TV shows and movies, mm -hmm. do you think that's an act, uh, a conscious act of preparing uh, human beings? Um, well, I know for sure that there have been rumours over the years of sort of, um, you know, government agencies subtly suggesting to filmmakers and production companies that, hey, you know, why don't you do this? And, um, you know, there are actually more than a few. We do know also, for example, in the 1950s when the CIA created the Robertson panel to look into the UFO issue, one of the things that they recommended was using the Disney Corporation to create cartoons to, um, you know, inform the general public, regardless of which way they wanted to go with, you know, informing them. Um, but, you know, having Disney on board to, um, 
to to assist the the government program. So that that sort of thing isn't out of the question at all. Okay. All right. Let's go to uh, Cynthia. I have no idea where you are, but welcome. Hi, I'm in Wisconsin. I'm sorry. I'm in Wisconsin. Okay. Go ahead. Uh, well, what uh, this uh, I find this rather interesting because um, a few days ago when you were talking about the um, aliens. I didn't make a connection, but when I, several years ago, I had a really, a series of dreams about aliens. And, um, the, there was one that particularly stood out in my mind where I, uh, um, some aliens were going to take my kids and I started, um, chase chipsing, you know, all kinds of fearsome creatures and it scared them and they went away. Well, that's a new one. Um, I think that uh, some of these experiences, uh, Nick, occur to people when they are in or near the sleep state and, and more suggestible, I would think. Yeah, I mean, there actually are a number of sort of the weirder men in black cases where I actually do think there's a good chance that they can almost invade the, the dream state. You know, they can literally manipulate people's dreams. And uh, that might sound far out to a lot of people, but on the other hand, you know, there are more than a few reports like that where somebody, you know, goes to bed and they wake up in the middle of the night and they see this weird shadow-type person or the hat man in the bedroom but it gets worse than that, that they actually feel that this, these entities can intrude upon and actually manipulate the, the nature of what they're actually dreaming. So in other words, you can get a strange visitation in a physical sense, but also these things could possibly visit us uh, malevolently while we're sleeping and actually have the same effect on us, this sort of chilling threat, but it's not done physically. It's done by literally getting into your mind while you're sleeping. Okay. Uh, here comes a question from Heather who wants to know, is it crazy to ask if the black-eyed children just might grow up to be the men in black? Well, you know, I've heard that more than a few times, and as I said in the new book, uh, David Weatherly, who wrote the book, Black Eyed Children, has done an entire paper on this very issue of the parallels, and um, you know, whether they are the child equivalents of, you know, the men in black, I, I don't know, but I mean, what I can say is that if they, <coughs> excuse me, if they are, everything about them makes sense, as I said earlier, with like, you know, the hats, the, the men in black have the black jackets and the black hats, the kids have the black hoodie, with, you know, obviously as a hat component to it as well, the, the skin colour, you know, the coming out late at night, um, needing to find a way into the home. It's almost like both of them, the men in black and the black-eyed children, are working to a set programme. And, I mean, you know, there's also the thing, are they actually really children? You know, this gets into sort of creepy areas. What if they're sort of biologically altered um, you know, we talk about the greys, which are sort of three to four feet tall. What if they're actually not children? We think of them as children because they're small, you know, but what if they're actually skillfully altered extraterrestrials, you know, that are designed to look like human children? That that would be even sort of more um, disturbing. The whole thing is disturbing. Matthew, you're on the air. Hello? That's a lot of noise you got there. Hello, Matthew? 
I guess that's all we get is noise. <laughs> we'll try the phone. Um, hello there. You're on the air with Nick Redfern. Hello, is this, is this me? That's you. Hey, how, how's it going? Um, I just wanted to ask uh, Nick, Have you are you aware of any cases of... Uh, of the men in black, like, physically assaulting anyone or anything like that? Right. I asked, asked that earlier, but yeah. uh, sure. Oh. Yeah, there's, as far as I know, pers I, I personally don't have any cases where they've been physically assaulted, but, you know, they they sort of infer sometimes that a person might end up dead or, you know, they should be very, very careful about what they say to who, et cetera, et cetera. But it, often it's, you know, that threat is enough to where they don't need to actually, you know, resort to physical attacks. But, I mean, look, as I said, looking at the size of them and the build of them, physically they're not really up to taking us on. And I think that's why they rely on the mind control because that keeps them in, you know, in, in control of the whole situation, which physically they, they could not do. So I think, you know, that, that's interesting that we don't actually really see what we might expect. You know, we might expect old men in black, they, so they're going to, uh, you know, they're going to put the... Uh, you know, the, turn the screws and really you know, they're bad for us. But physically, they don't do that. They they just, uh, you know, they rely on sort of inference and threats and and things like that. Well, if they can control us with their minds, then the biggest linebacker is stopped cold. I mean, they don't exactly. need physical force. No. Okay, caller? Yeah, thanks. Okay, have a nice day. I mean, have a nice night. Right, you have a nice you night, too. too. Um that that really that part of it really bothers me that they can control our thoughts and it sounds so eerily similar. Have have you thought of sitting down with Dr. Jacobs and uh, comparing notes, the two of you? Well, it'd be a good idea. I mean, there's no doubt that you know there's um, this is sort of an area that I won't say it's completely sort of you know not unstudied. It isn't, but I mean, you know, it's a, I think it's a matter of putting all the threads together. I mean, like with the black-eyed children angle and the men in black, that's sort of perfect analogy that we've got these two phenomena that in many respects are extremely similar and yet most people treat them as different and unconnected and I think that's the danger in a lot of the men in black um, cases is not seeing the bigger picture you know people often view these events as random one-off encounters rather than looking at the bigger picture of how many have occurred where they've occurred what's the nature of them you know what was going on in the person's life and i think these are all important factors that um that come into play and, and you know and it might we might see a lot more parallels between the mib and the black eyed children the more we look into it and um you know i think this from our perspective, the more we know, you know, it, it's to our benefit. But sure. uh, whether we're going to like what we know or not, that's a completely another, another different question. Thing. Uh, James uh, sends me a computer message uh, through what we call the wormhole. He asks, I believe these men in black are demons spreading fear for Satan. This kind of statement was inevitable, and I, you know, I can't rule it out. The one that came to you was to show you, to scare you, meaning me and to make you talk more about them so the fear spreads. Well, interesting thought. Uh, Nick? 
Well, yeah, I mean, there are actually some people who do, you know, um, adhere to the idea that the UFO phenomenon is demonic. I mean, one of them is a guy named um, Ray Boucher, who I interviewed about the Man in Black and the UFO phenomenon a few years ago. And Ray has an interesting background. He's, a, he's an Anglican priest, and he's also a former state director of MUFON, the Mutual UFO Network. He lives in Nebraska. And uh, Ray came around to the idea that, um, you know, the phenomenon is sort of more demonic than it is extraterrestrial uh, or literally demonic rather than extraterrestrial and um, you know there are a lot of people who actually do believe that theory I think from my perspective I think we're seeing a phenomenon that you know it could be extraterrestrial but it also has the ability to interact with what we might call the supernatural even if we're not really sure what the world of the supernatural is you know in terms of actually being able to control our minds this whole issue of people invoking them like Albert Bender did and sort of opening portals that has far more of a paranormal aspect to it but maybe it's something that can be explained one day by science and so in that sense I think it's possible that the sort of the world of what people call demons and science may one day sort of cross paths and you know it's um, things like the jinn that people talk about which is sort of like the Middle Eastern you know version of, of our demon not that much different um, you know some people like Rosemary Ellen Guiley who wrote several good who's written several good books on the jinn has pointed out that even though they're placed in a paranormal category, that you can actually also demonstrate that um, you know they could well be distorted tales of, of entities that live in other realms of existence that could be explained by science. So I think you know we could see sort of emerging one day of paranormal phenomena and science if we could understand how the two come together. Well, I am not blind to the fact that, for example, when I saw what I saw which, I, you know, I call a shadow person. I don't know what it was. Mm. I was doing research for this program. You know, somebody reminded me of that. That's what I was doing at that moment, research okay. for this program, which means I was thinking about things of this sort, and I just wonder if I didn't invite whatever it was on well, in. Well, you may have well done. I mean, people get quite disturbed when I, I've actually pointed this out to people a lot of times. It's, um, I mean, to paraphrase actually from the, the movie version of uh, John Keel's The Mothman Prophecies, there's a character in there that's based on Keel. His name's Alexander Leake, and Leake is Keel backwards. And he actually, and I'm quoting him exactly here, he, he, somebody asks him, one of the characters asks him, you know, what's going on? And he said, well... When you notice these things, they noticed that you noticed them. <laughs> and that sort of gets to the heart of it, the idea that when we think about these things, it's as if they know we're thinking about them, and then they start taking an interest in manipulating us. And I have so many cases like that where it's almost as if we create reality as we go along in the sense that when we think about these things, it starts to happen to us. And, yes, or, um, or yeah. you know, the th thinking about it, I was doing research on the paranormal, mm -hmm. and maybe that's like an invitation to come through the door. I don't know. As, outside the country, Magus, is it? Yes, yes. Hi. Hello. Where are you? Uh, in Romania. Romania, okay. Uh, I was just wondering, I know that a lot of people think about the men in black as the cigarette-smoking man from the X-Files. You know, the guys behind all the conspiracies. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. That. But is it possible that they're the 
Mulder and Scully part of the show. You know, the guys that just investigate things that the government doesn't want to make official. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, as I said, I think most of the men in re- black reports are sort of, have really weird origins, but there is a small percentage where I think the government, well, not necessarily the government, but maybe some sort of shadow agency has used the the mystery of these really weird men in black to cover their own uh, tracks. And so, in other words, some of these agency personnel may well have mimicked the legends, you know, that have been associated with the weirder ones. So in that sense, you know, there could be real government MIB, but actually based on the weirder ones. All right, we've got a break here, Magus. Thank you very much for the call. And next standby, we'll be right back. This is Midnight in the Desert. Take a ride from the high desert and the great American Southwest. This is Midnight in the Desert, exclusively on the Dark Matter Digital Network. To call the show, dial 1-952-CALL-ART. That's 1-952-225-5278. If you could read my mind, such a romantic song, really, right? But really, if you could read my mind, I wouldn't like it at all. And, you know, that's what we're talking about here things or beings or part humans that can read our minds or and or control our minds and possibility of an actual invasion there's no getting away from it if you heard what Dr. Jacob said and you're listening carefully to what Nick said you can mix and match and frankly you can come up with something pretty serious um, Peter you're on the air with uh, uh, with my guest. Welcome. Uh, g'day, Art, and g'day, Nick. Uh, can you hey. hear me well? I hear you uh, yeah. just fine. Yeah. Okay, I just want to put my two cents in about what the men in black might be. And uh, I'm thinking, I don't know whether this is true or not, but it's just a speculation. Um, what I think it might be is that uh, when we get tired, um, our brain runs low on something that's called neurotransmitters which is something that enables us to uh, actually think. And uh, I think it's uh, uh, the body generates a apparition of some sort, whether it be a men in black or dark-eyed children, in order to scare us. And uh, so what the scaring does is uh, enables uh, adrenaline to be released, uh, which also is a neurotransmitter. And uh, so the brain can continue to function. Um, So that... The, the whole idea of them not wanting us to talk about UFOs doesn't seem to work anyway. And But something that's in common with all the cases is the fear factor. So that's that's it. That's the, the idea. Now, that's actually interesting. I mean, there are some cases where, you know, I, I mean, I, I don't honestly personally think it's all totally internal. But, you know, I do think when you, you know, you talk about... Um, you know, the brain can create this and create that. Um, I, I, you know, I don't dispute that. I think sort of some cases of sleep paralysis can fall into, definitely fall into that category. But I do wonder if, like with the men in black, uh, some of the men in black cases, and granted, you know, this requires like a bit of a leap of faith, if something external can actually 
invade the dream state. Now, of course, you know, that requires us to try and find evidence for that. But I, I do believe, you know, that the, the human mind, you know, can do weird things. You know, there, there's no doubt about that. I mean, um, but I, I do sometimes wonder if, if even in the dream state, if, you know, if something can be present and, and manipulated, you know. Yeah. Well, I'm not sure, but... <laughs> No, yeah. right. no, but no, it's good we have that debate, you know, to look at it from both angles. I mean, we need that because we're dealing with sort of definitive unknowns. So we need, you know, the down-to-earth approach, and we need the other angle to try and bounce them off each other to see where it all leads, you know. So that's actually good. Yeah, well, I've had a few paranormal experiences, but yeah. some, some of these things, uh, one of the things I've noticed is that the distinct lack of detail in... Uh, in uh, the entities, if you like, um, and also the fact that they don't seem to hang around uh, too long, which sort of seems to be the, the limited by something. Um, and it could be if they're generated by the brain, maybe all the brain can do is to generate this illusion. Well, you know, we, we, we don't think they hang. They don't. We don't think they hang around long. But if they have control of our minds, I'm not sure we know. Oh, I see. Yes. Yeah, we really don't have a good idea of time, do we, if it's if they've got control of their minds. Right. It's kind of like waking up and looking at the clock. You know, then you know yeah. what time it is, right? Otherwise, it could have been five minutes ago. Okay. Yep. I understand. All right. Where are you? Um, in Australia. In Australia. Okay. Cool. Yep. All right. I bring up the other day about the disappearing watch off me. Oh, yes. Wrist. Yes, yes. Peter from Bendigo. All right, Peter. Thank you. And uh, take Thanks, care. Peter. Let's uh, let, let's go to the phone. Foley, Alabama, I suspect. Hello. Yeah, well, I'm actually calling from the Gulf Coast here in Gulf Shores, Alabama. My name is Rex. Hi, Art. Nick. Hi. And uh, I remember, hi, I remember back in the uh, early 70s reading The Silencers by John Kill. And in one of the, the uh, cases he was talking about, uh, in Western Virginia, 1942, the, an object had gone down in the woods to the north, and the sheriff got together with uh, a reporter and a posse, and they went out through all of this uh, long hiking, and they, they found a clearing, uh, a large clearing, and in the clearing was what appeared to be like the fuselage of an aircraft of that time without any wings, uh, tail, propeller, no windows, anything like that. And standing near the wreckage of this uh, object were five uh human type people and two of them were dressed in some kind of jumpsuit maybe the pilots or whatever but the other three were dressed in business suit type apparel and uh they went on to talk about how that you know their shoes uh, of these people were like always brand new like they had just left the haberdashers and you know their clothes seemed to not fit quite right and they were you know awkward one of them was offered a cigar he tried to eat it and then the jello incident uh, the guy tried to drink it, and uh, that's this is way back in the 70s, okay, when I read this book, and I was very interested in it, and uh, I wonder if you, you know, recollect these encounters. You know, there was a couple of other incidents on a mountain where they were going to, they had arranged to meet with this guy that was researching UFOs and had some incriminating photographs or something like that, and they wanted to meet with him up on this uh, hill or mountain or whatever, and it was a, a winding road, and they seemed to drive uh, vehicles that seemed to be the make uh, and model of, of several different 
type of older vehicles like you were describing. And when they got up on the uh, on the road, they noticed one of those vehicles like that with two figures, silhouettes in the front, and they kept winding around, and then it came to a dead end. And the vehicle had just mysteriously vanished. And so he thought he was being, you know, the victim of uh, they, they were trying to intimidate him or something like that. But it's a very real thing going way back to the 40s. And uh, uh, that's... May right. And, uh, I mean, Kale chronicled, like, a lot of those Men in Black reports, and he was sort of astute enough to realize that it wasn't just a modern-day phenomenon. He sort of looked back into history and folklore and found a lot of, you know, centuries-old stories that pushed the barriers back even further, where he felt that, you know, like I said, with some of the old vampire stories and legends, he felt could have been born out of things like... Many black encounters three, four hundred years ago. Um, but I actually have a few, not so much in connect, direct connection with many black reports, but I've got a few stories of people claiming to have seen, like people in business suits coming out of UFOs and, uh, you know, very strange stories. Um, but again, we see, we're sort of seeing the developments of, uh, of a pattern and, um, and Keel recognized that, you know, and he, he recognized it was sort of an age old phenomenon. He didn't feel it was, brand new but um you know i mean it's it's interesting that you know we're sort of seeing these parallels and pushing the barriers back as to when the men in black really sort of began so to speak all right nick um here's another computer message through the wormhole ralph asks are all men in black or have there been any women that might explain the black-eyed children well, funnily enough, believe it or not, um, early next year I've got a new book coming out called Women in Black, and it's actually like a full-length study of, of the women in black. Um, that The book's sort of pretty much all finished now. I've got about another 10,000 words to do, and that's it. But I've actually got um, a, an incredible amount of reports of, really? of women in black, and um, they're actually not as exciting as they sound like they should be, <laughs> in the sense that... Um, they they actually come across just like the men in black. They're very pale, um, typically wear like a, a woman's black business suit, uh, very emotionless. Um, again, they have this really tight um, skin. You know, looks like as if they've just again overdone it with Botox. Um, but they also, you know, they turn up in UFO incidents. And what's interesting is that whereas the men in black you know, just present themselves as they are. Very often, the women in black present themselves as, for example, census takers, or, you know, they're doing a survey in the area, and can they come in and ask right. a few questions? So, in other words, the women in black, what the big difference is, they often have a cover story, and um, but they're very much like the, the men in black, where their voices sometimes sound stilted. There have been a lot of reports of women in black where... They they look quite like you know the, the aliens that you know like the greys and they've been seen wearing like long you know long wigs like a woman's wig you know sort of down to her shoulders and beyond and uh, against sunglasses and uh, sometimes a beret or something like that on their head so they're cl again they're clearly trying to camouflage themselves but uh, yeah the women in black mystery uh, is sort of really underappreciated one and that's why I wanted to do this book because there are so many fascinating stories that, that fall into that category alright uh, let's go to the phone hi you're on the air 
Hello? It's me? It's you. Yes. yes, indeed. Yeah, this is Ken from New Hampshire. Yes, sir. Uh, my question is for Nick. Um, hey, Ken. What's the most common... What? He just said hi. <laughs> yeah, hi. Uh, what is the most common thing that will draw the men in black to a person? Is it more of something they saw or um, a specific sensitive topic that they don't like you talking about to multiple people? Is there one thing that sticks out more than anything else? Well, um, for the most part, when it comes to these weirder men in black, it's when they've had an encounter, you know, like an abduction or a contact case, or they've been in the wrong place at the wrong time and they've seen a UFO land. Those are the ones who seem, seem to get visited more um, you know, by the weirder men in black. But I do have more than a few reports where guys in black suits, which I think are actually sort of government people, um, have, have visited the homes of people when perhaps they've, you know, they've been hiking in the desert or something like that and they've come across, you know, a, a fence that says keep out, that sort of thing. And, or they, you know, they may have seen something like a, a classified aircraft being test flown and they've been visited, but it's clearly by a different sort of, you know, category of MIB. As I said, most of them are of the weirder types, and they, the, the people who typically get those visits are when they've had a UFO encounter. That's a fairly significant one. But there are some reports which I think are more down-to-earth, not as many, you know, and, it, and it's just somebody from an agency coming along and saying, hey, you know, about that thing you saw in the sky, don't talk about it, but... But there are also kind of crossovers between some of these stories as well. Uh, okay, thanks. All right, thank you very much. And let's go to, I'm not sure who, uh, whoever's next. You're on. Hello? Hello. Yeah, nice to have you back on the air, Art. Thank, um, thank you. I just uh, just read one of Nick's books last week uh, about the Ben and Black. As a matter of fact, I'm... Um, I, I tried to call him when David was on because, you know, since I was a kid, I've, I've experienced a full spectrum of like UFO and paranormal stuff that's led me to do my own personal research over the years. But something you said earlier about maybe they appear as friends, family, that sort of thing, um, I started having these experiences back in the late 80s, early 90s. It actually led me to, to learn to lucid dream because I was having waking experiences like shadow people and like, in the blackness, I know you hear some people say they hear whispering and murmuring and voices they can't quite make out, things of that nature. But I started dreaming about these hooded cow beings, and it was not like a normal dream. It's almost like a battle of wills. And there's, it led me to personally believe that, you know, the vampire parallels are there. And a lot of times it would appear um, as family or friends, and it was like the black-eyed children, where they would try to, to get you to let them in or let them close to you, mm-hmm. it's almost like there's a hypnotic suggestion there. And if if you didn't succumb to it, if for some reason it didn't work, they became belligerent, angry. The facade would start to slip, and they would start to change, and their eyes would turn black. And it was almost like their teeth became pointed and fang-looking, and they got more gaunt and violent-looking. And this led me to start doing some research, friends, family. I found out they'd some of them have been seeing the same things, drawing the same things, even seeing things in waking hours. And uh, it, it kind of culminated in a waking experience with my brother where we were out one night past dark. We were standing under a street light, just kind of hanging out. We hadn't gone inside yet. And I heard 
uh, boot steps coming down the sidewalk, and this man comes out from under this tree, and I knew there was a friend down the road that was having a party. I thought at first maybe it was somebody coming from that. And as he got closer, he started coming across the lot towards us, and I started to get frightened at this point, and I didn't know why. It didn't really make any sense. And you know, I'd done my own research. I'd went out looking for things before. There wasn't a lot that really scared me in that regard. But as he got closer, it got worse. And I couldn't really understand what it was at first. It didn't really register. And as he walked under the streetlight towards us, it finally hit me that even though he was under the light, you couldn't see his face. It was covered in shadow. You couldn't see any of his face. And he started running towards us, and I, I just gave in to complete fear at that point and I pushed my brother and I told him to run and he chased us a, a full block and of course he runs in he slams the door in my face I, I had to try to get the door open and as I looked back he was reaching for my shoulder and I got the door open I slammed it behind me and I turned and looked through the blinds and there was nothing there and I went back outside we lived on a corner of a main highway and crossroad I looked all around I there was nobody to be seen anywhere. And to this day, that was probably one of the most frightening experiences I've ever had. And then shortly thereafter, in the late 90s, you started seeing these these stories of the black-eyed kids, um, you know, coming out on the Internet and people seeing them in, in waking hours. And uh, I wondered if Nick had ever run across any sort of similar reports to that. Okay. Well, yeah, I mean... Experiences where, you know, you have experiences in the real world and then you start having dreams and you feel, you know, that there's something invading the dream and uh, they're trying to, you know, um, sort of pull the wool over your eyes, so to speak. There, I've got a lot of stories like that. You know, that these phenomena, whatever they are, I don't think they're just able to manifest physically. I, I literally do think they can sort of get into the dream state. And what gets, you know, dangerous for us is that they can sort of take on the guise of various different things, you know, and if we fall for it then, you know, it just gets worse and the the camouflage that they're using becomes more and more sort of acceptable to us. But I mean it's interesting that you talk about, you know, that you manage to just get back as he put his arm out to grab you and, you know, he shut the door. Well, that kind of, you know, is sort of symbolic in terms of when the men in black wait to be invited in. You know, you slam the door and it was gone. In other words, you'd taken away its power. Um, it needed you to uh, allow it to enter through the door. And when you, you know, you, you broke free of the spell, so to speak, and slammed the door in it, in its face, you essentially took its control away. Right, or you took away the fear because, you know, you became the one controlling the situation. And, uh, you know, I think that's their vulnerability is when they realize that their ruse has been rumbled, so to speak. Mm -hmm. You know, that's, that's the important thing to try and do is to, if you're suspicious of what they are, what they seem to be, try and focus and look through them and see, you know, if there is a ruse, if there's something else going on. And that often is something that makes them back away because, you know, without that image that they use to project a strength, you know, that's, they've got nothing other than that. And if you see through it physically, they're not able to really, you know, they're no match for us. Apparently. Uh, Marion, um, somewhere in the world, where are you? Uh, Bucharest, Romania. Sorry for my voice. 
That's all right. Did uh, you? Did you? That was not you earlier. You're a different Romanian caller. Caller, is that right? Absolutely. Oh, uh, darn. Two Romanian calls. Two Romanian calls in one night. That's a record. Go ahead, sir. <laughs> we are very passionate about uh, paranormal and this stuff. That. So, uh, yes. I guess that that's the reason. Uh, the thing is, I was just uh, considering this so-called invasion um, as uh, not necessarily being a bad thing. I mean, uh, <laughs> look at this perspective. Yes. Along, along the history, since ancient times, there's been lots of invasions which have formed new nations. Uh, uh, what we are today is a result of countless invasions uh, uh, along the history. So, but but but, but Marion, it de it depends on their intentions. Uh, if their intentions are good, well, maybe I still don't like losing control of my own mind. But maybe I admit we're a mess. Uh, I, you're you're suggesting their intentions are good. Uh, could be. We we have no no way of knowing that. Uh, but there may be a, a next evolutionary step in, in our development. Hmm. Um, Nick, any comment on that? Well, yeah, I mean, I think it's always, you know, we need to be very, very careful when, you know, some other force or country or whatever promises, you know, we're going to do this and we'll help you with this, etc., etc. Right. It's very often usually a self-serving approach, even if we don't necessarily see it. And I'm always suspicious of entities like these that don't openly show themselves but sort of work in the shadows and sort of worm their way into society and you know and I think infiltration is a good term to use and I think when we use that term infiltration I find it difficult to see there's sort of anything positive about an infiltration you know to me it smacks of like I said a self-serving agenda which you know involves us but certainly not from. I don't think it's from the perspective of benefiting us. I, I do. I do agree, Nick. Uh, Marion, do you have any evidence to suggest it's positive? I don't. I don't think that we'll be welcoming them uh, if they come at our doorstep and say, you know, I'm I, I'm willing to take over and share my uh, uh, mm -hmm. mental activities <laughs> with your own. I don't. I don't think we gotta say. Uh, we we will say. Uh, yes, uh, you're welcome. Come in. No, I, we won't do that. We are water-like uh, race. Well, Marianne, we... unless they have control of your mind, and then you'll say, come on in. <laughs> Thank you very much for the call. Let's go to uh, Roseburg, Oregon. Hello. Hey, how are you guys doing tonight? Very well. Thank you. Hi. Hi. Hey, I was I was always wondering if um, if, the, if there's any kind of report of uh, men in black being contacted by law enforcement or anything, or what, what would happen. Oh, good question. Yeah, that is a good question. Um, there's actually kind of an answer. Um, um, through the Freedom Information Act, both the FBI and the Air Force have released files showing that back in the 50s and 60s, both the Air Force and the FBI received reports of MIB from members of the, the U.S. public, you know, and people writing letters to J. Edgar Hoover and the Air Force saying, you know, I've been visited by this guy and threatened me and I want some action taken. And the FBI and the Air Force both looked into this to a degree for a while together. And you can actually read the memos where, you know, people saying, well, is this the government? And then you've got the FBI and the Air Force saying to each other, 
who on earth are the men in black? We need to try and find out. So in other words, what this tells us is that law enforcement clearly in the 50s and 60s knew about the um, MIB phenomenon because the files have surfaced through the Freedom of Information Act. But the big irony is when so many people in ufology were thinking the men in black were from the government, the government internally was saying, well, who are they? (laughs) So it's not the exact opposite thing we would expect. We would think they would have the answers or it was them. But that's not the case at all. They were actually more baffled. Law enforcement was more baffled by the entire MIB phenomenon in the 50s and 60s than the UFO research community was. They were, you know, because they didn't really necessarily understand the complexities of how it sort of tumbled over into UFOs and the paranormal. They were just looking for guys who were using fake identities to get into people's homes, you know, to commit a criminal act or whatever. Connor? Well, you know, yeah, nowadays, you know, with, like, all this, you know, uh, identification theft and stuff, you know, I was thinking that there would be some kind of protocol for, you know, uh, law enforcement contacting people like that, contacting entities like that, you know. Okay. Well, that's actually interesting what you bring up. I mean, if there was a way to figure it out, you know, if we could somehow, you know, access databases, you know, if the, if the relevant agencies release files, we might actually see far more reports that fall into the, you know, the MIB category than we realize. You know, you might get a report where somebody contacted their local police department, said this weird, creepy guy came round, and but then the police visited them, and the police said, well, you know, he didn't steal anything, you you know, there's no proof he's been, and they just close the case down. If we had access to those, we might find, well, that sounds just like a man in black, but the police, you know, dismissed it because there was no evidence and the case didn't go any further, you know. Wow. Okay. Uh, let's see. I think we can get one in. Uh, you're on the air with Nick. Hi. Hello. Hello. My name Hi. is Dean. Hi, Gene. Hi, Nick. Uh, I, I, Hi. I'm a very tangible person and uh, Art thank you for having this show this is one of the more interesting ones Nick I, I didn't meet you but I saw you this uh, uh, end of May down in the desert at, and was there for three oh, yeah. days and uh, I liked you on the panel uh, what I wanted you to address was two things here um, I'm a pretty tangible person I've been interested in UFO phenomenon and not as much as paranormal but as a nuts and bolts uh, you know, a, a physical reality. Um, and the last four or five years, especially when art came back on the air on satellite and then with some of the programs that are coming out now on digital, um, I've gotten much more involved. And I guess with the men in bat black, what I'm curious about, I have not myself seen a UFO that I know of or seen anything strange, but I lived through people like you and people that I met at, at the contact uh, who I believe, you know, Travis Walton and such, that really these things have happened to them on a physical level. My question is now that I'm running my mouth so much, uh, I've let the last couple of years uh, listening to programs, talking to people about it, I've had people approach me with their experiences, people that, like even at work, that you would never think would talk about it, but because I breach the fact that I listen to Art Bell and other programs, they open up to me. So my question is, uh, two things about how you have been over 30 years, if you've ever been threatened and all that, and you've talked to some of that. But I wanted to more specifically, the second part, wonder if you think that the government or law and agency, at least here in the United States, is trying to um, 
uh, to work in cahoots with this because since I've been involved with all this stuff, I received uh, strange phone calls uh, for marketing late at night when you don't usually get them. I've also received a survey from the government in the mail recently that was kept bugging me about, oh, it's part of the census, you've got to fill it out, and blah, blah, blah. And I'm wondering if that's a way to harass people like me that run their mouth and, and talk to people everywhere I go, you know. Mm. Well, that, that's a good question because I actually have got a lot of accounts from people who have been sort of threatened and, you know, this this whole, like I mentioned earlier, like the, the women in black turning up claiming to be census takers and that kind of thing. Um, when the sort of what seems to be a government component to some of these cases, my personal view is I, where I differ to a lot of UFO researchers, I actually don't think, you know, the the Air Force or the government or whoever are the bad guys in this at all. What I actually think is that the, the real deep and dark secrets that are hidden by some agency of officialdom, I actually think we're dealing with sort of these so-called black budget agencies or rogue agencies that operate outside of, you know, the confines of official government, you know, that Congress isn't even aware of them, they get their budgets through, you know, alternative means. So in other words, you know, it's like a secret government within the real government, and I think that this sort of, this really weird stuff that goes on, I think is done, you know, by some sort of, like a shadow agency, rather than by, um, you know, like I said, the, the government itself. And I, that guy, I, I, I kind of think that if marketing calls are part of the overall strategy, then I'm absolutely doomed because I, I, I just get them all the time. Marketing this, marketing that. So I, I'm not sure that would be an indicator of anything except that your phone number is on a bunch of lists. From the high desert, I'm Art Bell with Midnight in the Desert. High Desert. This is Midnight in the Desert with Art Bell. Please ring Art Bell at 1-952-225-5278. That's 1-952-CALL-ART. Well, all right. Welcome back, everybody. Nick Redburn is here, and we're talking about MIBs, men in black. A lot of what he said resonates back to what Dr. Jacob said the other night. It really is kind of eerie, frankly. I want to do something uh, just for fun. I have more phone lines than you even know I have. For example, I think I'm going to open up a first-time caller line right now, just for fun. Here it is. You ready? If you're a first-time caller to the show, call me at area code 775-285-5800. Pretty cool, huh? Didn't even know I had it. Once again, first-time callers only at area code 775-285-5800. The reason I'm doing that is because, number one, you didn't know I had another line, which I do. And number two, I found that it's um, it's really kind of nice to give people who have never called the show a way to do so. 
And um, while generally having one public line is, you know, just fine, because they roll over, so I have many, many lines at that one number, uh, it's very difficult for a first-time caller to uh, to get through. So there's a number. You've got it. And you might write it down, so if one day you decide to be a first-time caller, you can be. Area code 775-285-5800. Nick, welcome back. Thanks, Scott. We already have an apparent first-time caller. First-time caller line, you're on the air. Hello. This is weird tonight, mate. Uh, Is it now? Oh, yeah. It's quite different. Where where are you calling from, sir? Australia. (laughs) Okay. Um, anyway, you're on the air with Nick. Okay, Nick. Hi. You have a lot. You have a lot of stories you're telling, but I'm just curious: Are these men in black? I mean, the reports you get, are they really real? Uh, what What do they wear? What do they look like? There must be more to these stories with what they have, where they come from. All right. Well, I've, I've had, thank you very much for the call, very similar questions coming through on the computer, uh, Nick, that, you know, these are just stories that you've heard. You're not relating first-person stuff, and they're just stories. Uh, what do you say? Well, no. Well, no, I mean, every, I mean, like for the new book, there's like 30 um, chapters. Everybody apart from two cases is named under their real names with their websites or Facebook pages listed. Are people reluctant to allow that? No, most, I mean, I, um, with the new book, um, I think there are only two people who didn't want their names used. Um, other than that, you know, um, I, I never use anonymous sources unless, I, you know, the person specifically asks for it. But, um, gotcha. you know, for people to say that um, they're just stories, you know, they're not because, I mean, Anybody, because anybody can pick up the new book and see, for example, like I mentioned Claudia Cunningham, the woman who had the telephone interference. Um, everybody's named, the, you know, the, and as I said, in some cases, they even allow me to uh, use their websites and blogs. So they're not anonymous people or anything like that. I, I never do that. Okay. All right. I understand. I'm just telling you that people do... Oh, no. Sure. No, I, no I understand that. I mean, okay. I understand people's concerns that, you know, I always try and get people to speak on the record, and I think that's an important thing. I think sometimes the problem we have with the men in black mystery is people are so frightened by these experiences that that can make them reluctant to speak out publicly. And I, and I do totally understand that, but I, I always try, you know, where possible to encourage people to go public if they want and if they don't obviously you know I don't push them that's you know I'm not in the business of forcing people understood at all all right all right um, understood uh, look a first time caller line again you're on the air with Nick Redfern hi hello hi, Art. yes hello yeah uh your episode with Jim Keith from the 90s yes um that's one of my favorite coast to coast and he he talked about the men in black do you think the men in black had something to do with him passing away how can I answer that? <laughs> I don't know. Well, that's, that's, uh, that's the very best I can do. I'm sorry. I don't know. All right. Well, thanks a lot. You're very welcome, and take care. No way I can know that. Uh, you're on the air with Nick Redfern. Hi. Hi, guys. Uh, great show. Thank you. Um, I just was curious if these things have to have permission 
to or seemingly have to have permission to access our homes? Why is it that they do not need to have permission to access our minds? Mm. Oh, good question. That is a good question. I mean, I'll be honest with you. I, I don't honestly know the answer to that question because you would imagine that, you know, if they take control of the person's mind when they're in the house, why are they not able to do it when they're at the front door? That's right. You know, why is it they have to have that invite? Um, I, I, you know, I, I wish I could offer an answer because, you know, it doesn't make sense. I mean, I'll be the first to admit that. Um, you know, you'd imagine if they have that mind power, they could use it anywhere when you're in the car and you're in the in bed you know watching tv or you know cutting the grass outside um but that that is what people say you know they they what, what's kind of weird i probably didn't go into that sort of too deeply but what usually happens is that when the person opens the door the many black don't even say can we come in it's like they patiently stand there and then the person felt feels compelled to invite them in. One of the things I do wonder is if possibly the mind control is somehow um, derived from eye contact. Now that's to say that the reason you know they they're not able to force the person to open the door from the outside, you know, while they're outside, I should say, is because to a degree at least they need to make eye contact with the person, and then when the door's opened, then they feel you know, the person, that they have the ability then to sort of take over the person's mind. They're not able to do it from outside the door, so to speak. Okay. All right, caller? Yeah, okay, thanks, sir. Right, you're very welcome. Again, to the first-time caller line, this time Anchorage, Alaska, I think. Hello? It, it is. Is this our bill? It is. Art, Art, what a pleasure. I've been listening to you for years, and I just... You've always been the king of late night talk radio and, and new <laughs> new venues of the mind. I am truly honored. Thank you. Right. Thank you. Uh, I'll, I'll pose the question. I've been, I was in Cheyenne Mountain, the Norad Air Defense Command, probably in the early eighties. Really. The mag the magnitude of sophisticated technology beyond most people's comprehension that I saw at that time. And what truly fascinates me is how we can see these observations that seem to be increasing every day around the world and yet not have the discussion with our government. I am staggered by the sense of denial and disconnection, and, and perhaps you can... And, and by the way, one more thing, if I might, and I'll be off here, you need to contact Andrea Rossi. Uh, we think he may have discovered some low-energy nuclear reaction that's going to breach sometime around March of this coming year. But look, I'll get off of here. This is my art. I've been listening to you for, God, I don't know how long. Thank you so much for what you've done. So. Oh, you're very welcome, and uh, and take care. Gee, looks like the first-time caller line may be working out. That's uh, mm -hmm. that's amazing. All right, uh, let's go to uh, Skype and Flippy. Hi. Hello? Hello? Yes, can you hear me okay? I hear you, yes. Hear you. Uh, turn, your, turn your device off, please. It, it's off. Uh, he just hung up. Sorry to hear that. Uh, Silverdale, I think it is, Washington. Hello. Hi. Hello. Hi. Hi, Art. Yes. Hi. Um, I'm so glad to talk to you. I talked to you years ago, and I love your program. It's so happy it's back. I wanted to ask two things. I wanted to ask if there's a reference or any any reports of how dogs, particularly or cats, act to these, and also. 
years ago I heard something about how Howard Hughes that he became terrified of of something like this and it caused him to become such a recluse. Yeah, actually that that's an interesting question. I'm really? not personally I'm not personally aware of um any re responses from cats, but I do know that dogs have responded um, either with sort of terror or quite violently towards Man in Black. There was a couple of cases where, you know, they sort of very aggressively barked as if the the dogs were sort of not under the control of the Man in Black when the door was opened. Hmm. And there are other cases, and there's also a famous Black Eyed Children case where um, the dogs acted in a very frightened fashion and just when the door was opened and they saw them, they just charged under the bed, you know, and just wouldn't come out. Um, so animals definitely have a reaction um, to the men in black. There's no doubt about that at all, and to the black-eyed children. Now, um, what was the other part of the question? Uh, Howard Hughes. I had heard years oh, yeah. ago that Howard Hughes became a recluse because of confrontations with uh, what he thought was aliens, and, and possibly I was wondering if you'd heard if anything like this. Um, I haven't actually heard that one, but what I can tell you is that Howard Hughes was um, was good friends with one of the early famous contactees of the 1950s, a man named George Van Tassel, and he built something called the Integratron out at Landers, California, oh, yes. which is... Yeah. Well, actually, um, Van Tassel and, and um, Howard Hughes were good friends, and um, and so he clearly was fully aware of the UFO phenomenon, but I hadn't personally heard that, you know, that thing of the that made him become reclusive, though. Oh, thank you so much. All right, well, thank you for yeah, the sure. call, and Thanks. and take care. Uh, let's go to uh, Manitoba. Hello. Hi, Art. Can you hear me okay? I do. Good. This is Sharon calling from Brandon, Manitoba. Yes. And I am calling. Um, by the way, this is, a, I think, a, a very important show, very good show. Thank you. And I... Was I was in agreement with you when you said this was uh, kind of eerily similar to Dr. Jacobs' oh, oh. account. So close, yes. So close. And I agree. It's insidious. It's sneaky. It's cowardly. And, and I'm thinking for whatever entities they are to behave like this, there must be a weakness. Sharon, I also so, think very successful. You know, aside from the fact that we might be on to it, um, it's just the most successful way I can even imagine to take something over slowly but surely uh, and, and do so with minimal violence or anything else. It just works. Yes, and I, I will also say that Nick gives me hope, in, and this is what made me very curious, and this is what... what was kind of gnawing at me when Dr. Jacobs was on your show was there must be a way to beat this thing because I know that when I'm afraid or if I'm fearful, at times I will get angry. Now, stupidly, I may get angry, but did these people who were able to shake out of this nick of this mind control or whatever it is they, they have and, and the human spirit or a human being can break it, what causes them to break this? Because obviously these entities are not infallible. They're not omnipotent. There is a weakness to them. Yes. Now, that's actually a good question. For the most part, when people have actually been able to break out of this sort of uh, mind-controlled or mind-manipulated state they're in, it's generally due to uh, like a surge of anger 
that I'd fear combined, you know, that sort of, you know, that whole scenario of fight or flight, you know, do you run or do you, you know, stand and fight? And um, it, it is very often the case that the person is so terrified, you know, very often people are terrified and they fall into this state where they're completely controlled, but when it's terror mixed with anger that, you know, something has forced its way into their home and they're fearful of the, for their family and they get angry, etc., etc., et then it's like the anger can break the spell. Or it may just be it's like a high state of emotion that sort of creates a glitch. You know, that, that's a possibility as well. It may not just be due to anger. It could just be that they want us in a really calm state, you know, so we're non-threatening. And anything that's sort of suddenly different, threatening or anger or, you know, etc., etc., that may be sort of the glitch that they're unable to control, perhaps. All right. Well, we're getting woefully short on time. Uh, so thank you for your call, hon. I appreciate it. Thank you, Art. Right. Take care. Um, uh, again, to the first-time caller line. Aha. Uh -huh. How about that? You're on the air. Good evening. Good evening. Where are you? I'm in Bloomington, Illinois. Okay. Well, welcome. Nick Redfern's right, right here. An honor to talk to you guys. Uh, I was wondering, has children have, have have children had any contact with the Men in Black, and what was the response to that? Mm. Yeah, there actually are a few cases like that. Um, most of the ones that I've got where children have been involved, it's involved sort of more of the shadow people type ones. This one known as the Hat Man, which looks like a shadowy silhouette mm -hmm. wearing an old star fedora, and I've got um, probably. A, I would say somewhere in the region of 20 cases from adults but who had experiences with that type of, like the silhouetted MIB, when they were children, sort of back in the 50s and 60s. Um, I've got a few cases um, from you know people like in their late teens and 20s who had experiences like this when they were five or six. Um, but they weren't sort of with, you know, the, the case they were, you know, at home on their own when the parents were out or something, they knocked on the door. It was always in sort of like the weird dream-like state where the, the hat man, shadow person, sort of manifested in the bedroom. Um, so all the children ones, the ones I've got at least, fall into that category. Thank you so much. You're very welcome, and thank you for the, uh, the first time call, too. Uh, take care. And very quickly, uh, Bob... On Skype, you've got about a minute. All right. Uh, I very much enjoyed the uh, Dr. Uh, David Jagas uh, show. Uh, anybody who perpetuates the uh, black-eyed children is, is purely a, an urban myth, and anybody who perpetuates that is losing credibility. Why do you think – well, why do good you – Yeah, you know, good night. Um, you, you hear that? Yeah, well, I mean, the reason, I wouldn't say it's a case of perpetuating it. What it is, it's a case of the fact that people speaking on the record come to us and tell us their experiences. Right. So we investigate them and then we share them because that's the right thing to do if they're happy about doing it. So nobody's perpetuating anything for the sake of it. You know, we wouldn't be, people wouldn't be writing about the, the black-eyed children if there weren't witnesses out there. And there are. I've heard, I've heard them, Nick. I've heard the people call in and talk about them. So I know it is so. I've had emails about them. People see these things. So that part of it is not a myth. Now, maybe people are somehow perpetuating something. I, I don't know. But I shadow people and all the rest of it, 
This is real stuff. It really is happening. It is really weird, genuine stuff. It's very serious, very sinister, and there's some sort of agenda going on, which we need to resolve quickly. Nick, all my lines are full. I've got to go. I'm sorry. I wish I could take more calls for you. Um, What would you recommend to people? Your book, your website? What do you want to do? Um, well, people, if people are interested, my new book, which has just come out last week, called Men in Black, and if people can find me at my uh, blog, which is uh, Nick Redfern's World of Whatever, if they type that in, they'll find the blog quite easily. Nick Redfern's World of Whatever? Correct, and the new book's called Men in Black. <laughs> All right. Nick, <laughs> thank you for being here. I'm sure we'll do it again sometime. Take care, my friend. Thanks a lot. Yes, See you later. Good, good night. He's uh, qualified to talk about so many things that... Uh, I'm sure we will do it again. I'm Art Bell. I want to warn you tomorrow night we're going to be talking about something really serious and unfortunately increasingly possible, and that is global thermonuclear warfare. So be warned, that's a rough, rough topic. But that's, you know, some of what we do here. From the high desert, good night all. Good night all.